0: Hello and welcome to Silencing Women in the Name of God. I'm Devery Alice. Today we have on Dominique. I met Dominique fairly recently at a retreat and it was so lovely getting to know her. And then on the car ride to the airport, we realized we had this huge thing in common around leaving a heavy religious system. And I was like, oh my God, we have to talk. So she graciously agreed to come onto this podcast Uh, Dominique has left evangelicalism, but her story is a little bit unique in that she didn't join this movement until she was about 25. And so we hear the before um, and and the events in her life that drove her to evangelicalism. And then she ended up training under and rubbing shoulders with some very big names in this movement. And she's going to talk about that. And we are going to really shine a light on the damage and the harm of purity culture and also the patriarchal systems that are so hardwired in there. And it is a, I'm so grateful for her vulnerability in this journey because she shares her before and her journey in how she just bought all of these systems, hook, line, and sinker for a while as she tried to conform and be better. Um, and then her realization that this was not the place for her And then having to walk through the pain of coming back out of that and now trying to get those systems and those beliefs and those ways of being out of her mind and out of her world. And it's just it's a beautiful, inspirational story. I'm so grateful she was willing to share it. So sit back, enjoy, and thank you for being here. Dominique. Hi, Devry. How are you? (laughs) I am doing so good. And I'm so glad you're here. This is going to be such a good episode. I cannot wait. I'm excited. I'm excited. So, Dominique and I just met actually. We were on a retreat together Mm -hmm. uh, in Tennessee, and we actually didn't talk a lot while we were there. I mean, some. But not a lot, mainly mainly because I was in a weird, weird place for that thing. And Um, you were writing. You were writing a lot. (laughs) I was also trying to write. But then we got in the same car together on the way home and started talking. And I was like, oh my God, like we have to, yes, we have to keep talking. Yeah, it was amazing. um, It was. And I'm so glad that we've gotten to know each other better and didn't miss that opportunity. Because,
1: yeah. It was like like meant to be. I was meant to be in that car on the
0: way home. It was awesome. Absolutely. I agree. I totally agree. Okay, so I'm going to read your bio really quick for everyone that's listening. Okay. And then we're just going to get going. So I'm excited. (laughs) Dominique Richardson is the co-author of the Ever Beach series, a young adult romantic suspense series full of forbidden romance, deadly twists, and scandalous secrets that will keep you turning pages into the night. The fourth and final book in the series came out on June 6th. Check out the first book, Red as Blood, if you're looking for your next bingeable read. Passionate about all things books and giving back to the community, she is also the executive director and co-founder of YA by the Bay, a non young adult reading and leadership festival dedicated to inspiring teens to be the author of your own life. I love that. Uh, raised between Jamaica and the United States, her biracial heritage finds a home in her books. She spends her free time passing on her love of unicorns to her twin boys, running in the Florida heat, and drinking all the coffee. She now lives in Tampa, Florida with her family. Yay! So exciting. Yay. And I love i love that uh, Be the Author of Your Own Life. That's really, really beautiful. And I love that you are also adding leadership into a team festival. I think that's just phenomenal and so needed. So, good job. Yeah, no, absolutely. Abs. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We, we
1: wanted to take the, um, you know, young adult book festivals are kind of a thing with, with the young adult book industry, but we wanted to take it another level and actually um, help teens kind of, you know, if you meet somebody, you meet an author, you meet these people who have done something, we wanted them to be able to take away, like, how can we use our voice to make a difference in the world? So whether they wanted to be writers or not. We wanted to use authors to inspire them. And so
0: we're very excited about it. I love that. I love that. That is just beautiful. And I love that you're doing it in such a a healthy way because I know your story and I know your connection to, you know, different ways of leadership through church, you know, get-togethers and church camps and all of that stuff. And taking um, those things that are really, really important and putting them into a, in my opinion, more healthy environment, I think is beautiful. A hundred percent. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get right into you growing up because you didn't actually, so you you came out of the evangelical Christian movement. Yes. Uh, but that's not what you grew up with. You grew up with no. Episcopalian, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So I want, I'm just going to turn it over to you and I want you to kind of walk us through, um, yeah, how, how you grew up your experiences in college so that we understand what really pushed you into this movement at 25 and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I didn't really grow up too much
1: in the church. Like my family was Episcopalian when I was younger, But, and I went to Sunday school and I did all the things, the Christmas play and, you know, I had the fruit juice and the graham crackers and all the fun things. But when my parents got divorced around when I was, I think like 13, the church was like, it's not okay. And they wouldn't annul a marriage and wouldn't accept it. And so my parents were like, okay, no more church. So I didn't really go to church with my family, but in high school, there were youth for Christ groups. And I, I kind of joined like a youth group with some of my friends and then they got rid of the pastors, but they never really explained why. And it was like really sad. So I just remember that. Um, and then I did youth for Christ and that was kind of like a athlete. I think it was an athlete thing. That's what I remember it being, but I did that. And I remember going and hearing, you know, watching like someone get in a car wreck on a video and hearing the whole salvation plan and, I think I, you know, stood up and said, "Yay, I want to accept Jesus." But it wasn't one of those things that was a uh, part of my like. It was in that moment, but it wasn't something that just carried forward in my life every day. Um, right. And when I went to college, I had a uh, kind of a interesting experience just because I had grown up. Um, I had buried a lot of trauma. That I didn't realize I had buried until I went to college and was free and kind of away from any of those um, triggers or people who I had experienced trauma with, and so I ended up kind of going on this self-destructive downward spiral. Um, I was—I'm actually an adult survival survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and so I had a lot of buried memories and things that just started to come up, and it—it it put me on this. Basically, self-destructive path. I was just really trying to escape the pain that I was going through inside and internally, and searching for something, grasping everywhere. And fast forward to when I'm 25, I met this woman in one of my classes in college. I was taking some night classes, and she started talking to me about celebrate recovery. And I, she led a group of women survivors, women who had been through what I had been through, um, and she invited me to come. And so I was like, okay, I'll go. And actually, I was one of those people who was very antagonistic to the Bible. I was like, how can you believe that? It was written how long ago? It was written by men. And I just would question all these things. And I sat down with her and we got into all the the questions and she had an answer for everything. And so I'm like, okay, I'll go with you to your Celebrate Recovery group. And in that group, I found a lot of um, comfort in connecting with other women who have been through what I've been through. And at the end, one night after one of those groups, I asked her, like, how do I know if I'm saved? And she and I, you know, she's like, you just pray. And I'm like, okay. So I prayed that night with her and I said the prayer and asked Jesus into my heart. And from that point forward, that set me on a very, very deep dive plunge into the evangelical movement. And in particular, I found myself aligned with the Southern Baptist denomination. Um, that is the church that I was going to with her. And then I ended up going to a different one for the, the young professionals group. Um, and so that's where my journey in evangelicalism started.
0: Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to pull us back to a couple of things if you're all right with it. Um, First of all, it was so funny. I lo- <laughs> if I wouldn't have ha- interviewed other evangelical women, I would have had no idea what you were talking about. You said it so casually, it made me giggle over here where you were like, and I went and I watched the car wreck video. And then I was like, yes, I did. And I was like, I happen to understand this because I've talked to enough evangelical women who have gone to these camps. Like, can you talk to us <laughs> a little bit before I go into the trauma? Because that was also, I want to to talk about those memories coming up because my God, how traumatic in and of itself, but, mm-hmm. um, the, the manipulation tactics that are used, um, in this, in these type of setups where you go to these three or four day events. Um, can you talk about that at all about like, why do we have a car wreck video? <laughs> like why is this significant?
1: You know, cause the, the car, the wreck, the person didn't make the decision for Jesus. Like they went to the party with their friends and they didn't make a decision, and then they, you know, if somebody's probably driving drunk, and then they die, and then they're they go to hell and they burn in fire, and so which is, which is you really, don't want to burn in fire.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. God, I can't like. This is what and we're going to talk so much about. This is is the manipulation tactics and and the things underneath this, but like mm-hmm. that it's such a prime example of getting the stakes so high that like my god what other choice are you gonna pick as a how old were you what 16 uh, i was, was like 18, 17 17 yeah probably 16 17 yeah. like right at 30. yeah how many yeah. 17 year olds are going to sit through this where you've got because i'm sure you had the inspirational music oh yes, yes. all of this stuff that have just primed you to be in this state um emotionally and then yeah. to have to have it be like how how many 17 year olds are going to be like no no i choose hell <laughs> like i'm at I, hell please like that's the one i like like it's just oh, yeah. annihilation yeah. Yes, i love yeah. how casually you just you just threw that
1: cuz uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a thing it's a thing the car wreck <laughs> video is a
0: thing it's a thing and it's so oh god it's so funny um so but then yeah you went on to state that you so you left you went to college and you started mm-hmm. having memories come up of sexual abuse. Yes. I don't want to re-traumatize you by making you tell anything you're not ready for. But I I think you cannot be the only person that this is happening to or has happened to. And mm-hmm. for me, I'm like, my God, how traumatic to not understand why all of a sudden you're remembering these mm-hmm. horrible, horrible things. Can you kind of talk to us a little bit about your mental state, what was going on, um, Mm -hmm. internally, how, anything you want to share for people who are listening that are going through what you went through?
1: Yeah. Um, it was really traumatic. I mean, I remember they were starting to come back in like flips and flashes and one night and and actually like one night I was driving down a road on the way home to my apartment and I had already been wrestling with this, this thing that was coming up, if that makes sense. And all of a sudden it just hit me. And I remember exactly where I was. I remember what it it almost, in my memories, it feels like a flash of light. When I look at that, when I see that memory in my mind, it feels like a flash of light when I'm driving down this road, I can see this road. I can see it's on, you know, US campus. I know exactly where it is on my way to my dorm And I just, just all of a sudden it hit me and I knew I had been sexually abused. And I was sobbing my eyes out. I drove and parked in front of a lake and called my best guy friend. And I said, you need to get over here right now, or I'm going to throw myself in that lake. I'm like, I need you to put me in an insane asylum, like put me in a straitjacket. I can't handle what's coming up right now. And he's like, hold, don't do anything. I'll be right there. And he came and he sat with me and he let me cry and he let me, um, process and he kept me from going in that lake, which was really great. Um, but it, you know, all kidding aside, I was, it was, it was very, very painful. It was very, um, it was, it was hard to process what had happened and realizing because it just all came on. I mean, I kind of knew it was happening, but it just came on at one time. And so from there it got, I actually, um, Went through a little period where I cut myself because of the pain. Like I needed a place for the pain to go and okay. it would be so strong on the inside that I needed to like, let go of that. Um, And then I had a friend who was like, she kind of set me down as my best friend at the time. And she was like, listen, she's like, honestly, I don't really believe in therapy, but I think you need it. And I'm like, Okay. And so I went to see, she was one of those people who's like not very into therapy, but she's like, but I, you need it. So I went, I started going to therapy and that helped, um, but it didn't, you know, it it takes decades of therapy to overcome the trauma from that type of abuse. And so it was the beginning stage. um, But what added to my downward spiral was that when... I was already going through this therapy for being abused, um, and I kind of, I ended up getting date raped too, and so oh that put me on a full out. Just I'm just gonna try to erase everything, the pain, drink every night, and after like a month of that, I just moved home um, and went home and uh, restarted my life, and basically went to a rape crisis center and started going to counseling there, and. Here I am.
0: Wow. Thank yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think it, it it is a, such an act of vulnerability. Um, and so I just want to honor you for that, for being willing to uh, share that. Because I, I know that you are not alone in that. And yeah. it does. No, absolutely. Unfortunately- and it's,
1: it's one of those things that I've, I've, gosh, I've had, if I hadn't had as much therapy as I've had, I wouldn't be able to talk about it the way I'm talking about it right now. Um, I've, I've literally two decades of therapy and I'm doing okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. And, but that's so important. And thank you for specifying that because I think we all, this is something that I, that I, uh, talk about a decent amount and that I'm really, really aware of is that there is a gap, um, in people talking about all of the traumatic events in our life, because, When we are healing, right, when we Mm -hmm. are in the middle of it, it's extraordinarily difficult to talk about because the pain is so raw. And when we are ready to talk about it, it's great because we're healthier, but we do talk about it with a casualness that is not accurate to the situation. And so for the people who are still in the middle of it, I think Mm -hmm. sometimes it can be confusing, right? For like, why is this person okay? And I'm still so fucking messed up. And yeah. so I I really love that you specified, like, no, I've had a lot of therapy and this has taken a really long time because expectations are important
1: because it mm-hmm. allows us to
0: take the shame out, right? Like, it's okay yeah. that I'm a disaster right now. Oh,
1: and yeah. And not no. like
0: this person who's had two decades of ther- like therapy. Like, that's, it's a really important distinction.
1: Yes. And I was a disaster for very, very long time. And honestly, you heal in stages, I feel like. You heal. Yeah. Through different phases of your life. And even I had a therapist once tell me that, you know, you're going to continually deal with this in different ways because of life stages. Getting married was a trigger. Having kids was a trigger. Like Mm -hmm. in each of those stages, I had to go through another level of, uh, depression and therapy. And it's, it, for me, the depression is, is a, was a big part of also dealing with it. Um, I definitely have had several different episodes of, of depression throughout mm-hmm. my life. Um, But oh, yeah. the great news is that if you keep working and you keep going and you put the hard work in, because it's really hard, but if you put the hard work in, you can't find healing on the other side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Thank you. Thank you. So this does lead us straight into – um, what you were talking about where you were going to the celebrate recovery, you know, when yeah. you were feeling these things. Um, yes. so I'm going to, we actually didn't talk about this in the pre-interview. So I'm going to take a stab at this here and you tell me whether you feel like it's accurate or not. You did therapy before and I know you didn't really do therapy in the middle because of we'll get to that. Right. Yeah. So you were kind of using this evangelical movement as your bandaid. Would you agree? Yes, in a way. I mean, it was. It's okay if you don't. Like, my God,
1: tell me. Be like, nope. no, no. <laughs> you know, looking back, it's interesting. At the time, I wouldn't have thought that. Um, at yeah. the time, I found a, I did find a healing. Like, I did find a a comfort in Jesus yeah. and in Jesus' story and yeah. what happened to him and what he went through and being able to look at that and say, "Wow, if he can overcome that level of pain mm. and suffering on this earth." I can overcome the pain and suffering that I'm experiencing on the inside. Right. And so there was a, a major beacon of light that came from that. Okay. What I didn't realize was the dogma that I was about to wrap myself up in right. to also like the mental, like all the things that go along with lining up with some of these denominations. And so yeah. basically, you know, the church itself became a band-aid. Um, I feel like when I came out of the church, I had a whole lot of work to still do because I didn't realize how much the church had kind of been that thing that tried to wash me clean and, and make me whole and healed and better.
0: Right. God, I love that. Thank you for specifying that. Cause I think that's a really important distinction. And I love that, that, you know, belief in Christ for you was acting as a point of courage and light You know, but then yes, separating that out from the experience of the church, which we're going to get into right now.
1: So Mm -hmm.
0: at uh, 25, you said said something about at 25, you prayed to be saved, which that was with the Celebrate Recovery movement, right? Yes. And that was the one that worked.
1: (laughs) That was the prayer that (laughs) time that like, honestly, I went home and I started reading scripture and it felt like the words were leaping off the page. And I was completely like, I was a new person. It felt like, and I, I dove into it head first. I needed to know everything. I'm a study learner person and I needed to know everything. So I started reading the Bible and reading books and just, I became one of those like Jesus freaks, like overnight. I was yeah. so into it. And I joined, I found a church that had a young professionals group and I met other people my age. I broke up with my boyfriend because we—he was like, "What's going on?" And I'm like, "We're not matching up." <laughs>
0: he's, and- he's like, "He's like, yesterday you were fine, and now." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the breaking with a boyfriend took a little
1: time, but like, we started to grow in different, completely directions, and I realized that we're not on the same page. And I just really dove into it, and I wanted—I loved it so much. I wanted to be in ministry. I was like, "I need to serve. I need to be in ministry. I felt called to ministry," and so yeah. I. After a couple of years of being super involved, I went and sat down with one of the pastors and I didn't fully understand yet how it operated because I was in the Young Professionals and they're not as big on some of that women dogma. You, It's there, it's in there, but you don't, they don't preach on it. So you don't right. realize what's happening. But I went and sat down with one of the pastors and I said, I want, and I sat with him and his wife and I sat down with them both and I said, I feel called to ministry. I want to go to seminary. And they go, that is wonderful. You should go to seminary and marry a pastor so you can be in ministry.
0: (laughs) And I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. That's like, that is okay. I'm laughing even harder because this is, you didn't actually say this in the pre-interview. So this is fascinating because, um, in Mormonism, there's this thing where it's like, yeah, no, you should go to college. Definitely. Like, that's so good. But you should go to college so that you can find somebody to get married to. And so that if you have an education, just in case he dies. But that's it. <laughs> you know, like, that's the point. <laughs> like, other than that, it's straight up to find someone to marry. So that is fascinating. Yeah. That the response was like, yeah, you should go so you can marry a pastor. Like, Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, Continue.
1: <laughs> oh, and that was one of my moments where I was like, what? I'm so confused. And I had conversations. I went and sat down with other you people. I'm like, I don't understand. Why can't I go into ministry? Why can't I be a pastor? Why can't I do this? And so they explained it to me and I was like, huh, okay. And so I kind of backed off of that idea. And I'm like, forget going into ministry. I'm going to go be an accountant um, because at least I could, you know, grow in my career. And then I, it's interesting that you say that about the, the, the being a wife thing, because yeah. this comes full circle where I ends up working in accounting and I'm like, man, this is not, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life? Is it, you know, I'm in the corporate rat race kind of thing. And I'm like, I still feel like I want to, I want to be a writer. I wanted to, so now I'm like, okay, I can't be a pastor, but there were a lot of women teachers that wrote books and taught, Conferences and taught book Bible oh. studies. So Beth Moore was like one that really spoke to me Um, she also had a background that was similar and I did a couple like several of her studies and she was incredible Um, and so i'm like I want to be the next beth Moore. I can go and teach the bible to women. I will teach the bible to women I will write bible studies for women only and so because women can't teach men scripture. Um, Well, obviously, because because
0: we don't have the intelligence for that. So that tracks. Yeah. It just can't. You just, yeah, it's not okay. Men cannot hear about spiritual things from women.
1: So I was like, you know, I found my way around this. And so I decided I want to go to seminary. And so I, while I started doing part-time seminary, like in the evenings, and that actually led to me going into full-time ministry because a job opened up at the church that I was going to, I was going to a large Southern Baptist church, mega church in um, my area. And the seminary was actually hosted out it's a Southern Baptist seminary and it was hosted out of that. They had a satellite campus out of the church. And so I when the job opened up, I was like so excited and I applied for this job. It was it was sounded perfect for me. It's called Director of Connections and what you would be doing would be overseeing like the Bible study groups and then also, you know, new people coming into the church. And so you were really helping people get connected to the church. So it was like keep the connected connected and then help the unconnected get connected. So, I was a recruiter in the, my background, too. I actually started recruiting at De, at Deloitte. I was working at Deloitte as recruiting as well. And so it seemed like the perfect fit for me. but but there was one caveat. I was a very strong woman and had a lot. they obviously saw leadership in me, I think, but they I had to sit down with a senior pastor, and he he doesn't normally interview people at that level. He would only interview like pastors, but he sat down because they, they needed to make sure I knew. That I would not ever be a pastor like I they needed to make sure my head was in the right place and I understood that the headship the male headship and that there was a hierarchy in the leadership and that I respected that and I was like of course you know and so one of the things I made sure I did when I went on staff they had like 27 or 28 pastors was that every single pastor I always called them pastor I was like pastor you know xyz every I never said their names without saying pastor in the, in before it, that was part of my way of making sure I always respected the authority and headship of the, the pastors.
0: Uh So that, was that something you came up with or something they asked you to do? I think it's something I came up with because of feeling
1: like I wanted to make sure, because I knew there was like worry about my role. The other thing too, is that I was working with the Bible study leaders and a lot of them are men because a lot of the classes are co-ed. And so Mm -hmm. obviously men can only teach women, men can teach women, but women can't teach men. So I had like, I was going to be working with these men and they, they had to work through and process. Is it okay for me to be in this role? Is, am I overseeing these spiritual men if I'm overseeing the Bible study group? So they had to work through a lot of that stuff. Um, and I wanted to make sure that they knew where I stood. Um, and so I, and I was still at that, like trying to line up and be what I was supposed to be, the kind of woman I was supposed to be, you know, right. the ideal that's held up because I still felt like that need to prove myself after the background. Cause you know, you, gr- in these churches, there are women that have grown up in the church and they have been like the shining pinnacle of what a gentle and humble, quiet spirit is supposed to be. And they've been raised in the church and they are pure and they saved their purity and didn't have sex till they got married. And they were, you know, the like shining bright, shining light of what a woman is supposed to be. And I was loud and outspoken and I had a childhood that was traumatic and I came from a different background. And so I was always feeling like inside that I needed to prove myself
0: and be this thing that i wanted to be right i man, i understand that i really like i think it is fascinating in a horrible way i hate when i use words (laughs) like fascinating it always implies good and that's not at all it's it's fascinating in like a sick and twisted horror can be fascinating fascinating (laughs) it (laughs) can it definitely can um how because this happens in the lds church as well this um lifting up of women onto pinnacles that are the right kind of woman, right? Like, it's like, yeah. I don't know if this happened with you. I'd be curious to know whether this was something, but, like, it is literally verbalized in the Mormon church where from the pulpit sometimes, definitely in classes, um, there will be descriptions of a very specific type of woman you know that is like the best type of woman oh the yes type of woman that you should be yes and people like you and me are sitting there going shit like right. okay i need to make myself smaller and i need to like yes. and then and yes. okay i'm hypothesizing because i've i i kind of know you now um but like <laughs> for me oh it's so funny i had an interview with let's see uh sierra sierra's interview uh she yeah. was talking about how she's like, God, you were just such an example to me because you would always like speak your mind at church and you would always say, and I was like dying because this was not my remembrance of this. And yeah. I was like, like, I just need you to know, and I need the people listening to know that when that would happen, what was going on is like, I had been quiet for so mm-hmm. long, yeah. then it would explode out almost out of my control. And then- yeah. I wouldn't walk away being like, good job, me. Like, no. Like, I would walk away going, why can't you just be quiet? Like, why yeah. can't yeah. you conform? What is wrong with you? Yeah. It's so like, yes, your experience. <laughs> yes. No, 100%. Like, it, it happened
1: on a repeated basis. Like, it was like, and I would I would, I would, would always be, I would be sitting there and I would feel like this anxiety inside. Like, I would be almost shaking yes. internally because I want to speak. Oh, my God. Like, especially in the yes. co classes because I would like want to give the guys an opportunity to speak. Make sure the men had a chance to speak and I wasn't always speaking over them and I wasn't always talking because yeah. I got feedback on that. I got feedback on that when I was in the young professionals group and I was in the Bible studies and it was like, well, you shouldn't maybe always speak up. And and we even had a class. Um, They had a class where they separated the girls and the guys out and they were like, they got on us about how we dressed and they were like, you need to be, you don't want to cause another, but, another person's husband to stumble by the way you dress. Yeah. And so you need to be modest so that the men can stay pure too because you're going to cause them to sin is basically the sentiment. Like it's it's the woman's yeah. fault if the man has lustful thoughts. Uh-huh. That's the uh-huh. way it is conveyed. They don't actually say those words, but by saying how you dress is going to cause them to – Dumble and getting really hard on that. So I went home, like after that thing, I'm like, oh, I went home and I like threw out all my clothes that I thought might've been inappropriate. And I went shopping and I bought all these new clothes that were going to be appropriate and covered me properly. Mm -hmm. Um, so that I didn't Mm -hmm. cause anyone's husband to think thoughts they shouldn't be thinking.
0: Mm -hmm. Which is Oh God, like the toxicity of that (laughs) <laughs> on, for both genders, okay, really, like it's so harmful to women, and it's such a disservice to men. Yeah, like I, I have to share. Uh, there was, and I really, oh god, I need to look up who this was, but um, there was a huge figure in the LDS Church. He was a gay man, and in LDS Church, like it's it's okay if you're gay as long as you don't act on it, which is. So horrible. Um, and I can yeah. talk about that for like 15 minutes. But he got married to a woman and, like, he had a whole blog on, like, basically, if you can do it, I can do it, which was so much. Oh. Mar- Um, and then eventually he came around and was like, Oh, like, so he sent out this huge apology post that was like, I have done a lot of harm. Like I was not right. Like I'm leaving the church. I am gay. My wife deserves to be happy. I deserve to be happy. Like the whole, the whole thing. Um, but after that, he wrote this huge Twitter thread, which I've saved somewhere. And he's talking about this, about how his daughters have all been taught that it is their responsibility to keep Um, Yeah, other men's thoughts pure. Yeah. And he is like, I am telling you that as a gay man who goes into locker rooms and sees naked men whose bodies I find attractive. Not once have I thought. I'm going to rape them. I am going to, you know, like I, these are thoughts that are within my control as a gay man. Therefore, like it is not my daughter's responsibility (laughs) to control. Control the man's thoughts. Exactly. And it was such a powerful, like the way he builds it is beautiful and I need to find it. But, um, it is, it is destructive for women and it's also destructive for the men who are like, oh, I'm, I'm too helpless. Like I'm at the whim of my instincts and impulses. There's an actual book written called every man's battle. Um,
1: and it goes into that and it talks about like how the man's battle is with their eyes. Like, that's what they teach. They're like, you know, the men, it's their eyes they are visual creatures. And so it's like, they can't control themselves. They need help to control themselves. And so you as the woman must be that help. And, and honestly, that's part of why I wanted to leave. Um, not part of why I wanted to leave. That was one of the things with my growing up. I have twin boys and I was thinking about when I was contemplating leading the church, right? One of the things I kept processing was like, my boys are going to be taught this. They're going to be taught that women are less than them, that they're the ones right. that are the headship and the leadership and that they're, mm-hmm. you know, and and I men should be leaders and women should be leaders. I'm not saying men shouldn't be leaders. Yeah, men absolutely. should absolutely be leaders and women should absolutely be leaders and there should be a yep. partnership. And I believe yep. in partnerships, but this whole like, it was called complementarianism. That's what they lined up with, which is basically that men and women were created equal, but with different roles. Mm -hmm. And so these different roles helped, you know, the woman is the helpmate and the man is the leader and he's the caretaker and he's the provider. And they almost, it's interesting because they, they put into it this toxic masculinity, to be honest with you, that they say is scriptural and they are like, and and they start to make it into, and they even add in these things. Like the man is the decision maker. Where does it say it in scripture that you can't even like you can't even mine that anywhere like you can mine some of this other stuff out of there but like the man is this is the decision maker like where how do we break it down to be that it's decisions and then you hit on something else that was very interesting to me about how they teach the woman like what you're supposed to be i have another book that was called the excellent wife you know and it was mm-hmm. based on proverbs 31 one woman I actually wrote a whole yeah. paper on this in seminary because there's one word in there and it is translated. For Proverbs 31 as excellent and noble, but in 81 other times that word appears in the Bible, it is translated as powerful. And that entire passage. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Dead serious. Oh my God. That's amazing. Okay, keep going. Keep going. This is fascinating. So that entire passage is military language. That woman is girding her loins. She is, everything that she's doing is like to prepare for like battle. And then not only that, she's an entrepreneur. She had a business. She had all these women doing these things and working. And she was like raising, you know, all this stuff. And you've got her husband singing her praise at the gates. And it's my argument in that paper. There were two arguments I had. The first one was, one, it's an opportunity for women to see themselves as powerful. And you choose whoever the powers that be, mostly males. And as it's been, it's been white men that have been translating the Bible for 2000 years. But you choose this one spot to not translate that word as powerful. And instead we're going to say excellent and noble wife. Right. And then the second piece of that, that really got to me is that they hold it up in this, to be the excellent noble wife, you need to be a stay at home mom with your babies. And I'm like, What about the woman in Africa who has to strap her baby to her back and go out into the cornfields and shut corn and to to feed her kids? How does this scripture talk to her? How does the way you're teaching it talk to her? But what really is happening is it's a very privileged, wealthy Mm -hmm. way of interpreting scripture. And it's been Mm -hmm. fed by the powers that be who have been interpreting the words that we read.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. I actually, I've had a lot of people mention this um, proverb scripture, and it's Paul, right? Speaking or no, it's it's not. It's um. Oh, that's Proverbs, a different one. It's,
1: that's in the Old Testament, and so it is um, wisdom. Oh, God, yes. I don't know I who wrote that. it. At, off the top of my head, right now, I don't know who wrote. It. I think multiple people wrote Proverbs,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but it's in the wis- wisdom.
0: Uh, books. Oh, okay. Okay. Old so Testament. I was thinking it was in that Paul's womanhood thing, but that's not, this is a different one. Oh, Paul's womanhood thing is also really fun. <laughs> okay. But no, that Proverbs one is fascinating because really, and this is, I love talking about this stuff and, um, it's so hard for people to talk about it. Uh, when there's when you're still kind of in it's very confusing cuz it, oh, yeah. it tests the the cognitive dissonance but if we look at you know we so many religions are like nope the bible is the bible the bible is the word of god like it's perfect book and i'm like but it's been translated how many times under the direction of how many men in power who had agendas and this is mm-hmm. like the most perfect example where it's like the translation comes in and someone's like oh Ooh, like that's a problem. So we're going to just- I know
1: 81 other times we (laughs) said this word, but
0: you know, here- Here it's going to be something different. And it's Mm -hmm. so important that we recognize that because those are, it's their little clues for us of like, oh, this might not be what we thought it was. And that doesn't mean that people can't pull out and extrapolate things that resonate deeply with them, that feel correct to them. But to understand that, yes, this book did not drop out of the heavens in its current format, I think is well, you know really what, important. Well, here's something else that's really interesting.
1: I learned this um, in one of my my Bible translation courses, and they were telling me about how in a certain... So when they have to translate the Bible, there's certain things they have to think about when they go into other you know nations, and they have different um customs and one of the things is that in one of these nations i don't remember which one it was but it was a smaller nation and it was translating the bible there for the first time well jesus rode in a donkey and like in that culture a donkey is like not okay it is like cover your kids ears you are speaking filth do not talk about someone riding on a donkey so do you know what they did they changed it to a pig Wow. They changed it to a pig because a pig was were... okay for Jesus to write on in that uh-huh. culture. So you've got to really wow. think about it. Like, yes, go walk into this with eyes wide open. It's, it's the word of God, but there's interpretations and there's, there's people making decisions on the words that you're reading. Yeah. And it's, you know, you've got to, I don't know. I think there's a lot of spiritual truth. I think there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful things with, in, in there. But when you, inerrancy and infallibility is what they kind of like, it's an errant word of God. And you're like, but, but what about these five different translations that yeah you can just pick up right now and read? And they all translated a little bit differently. Like, yeah. And a think little about that. That happens matters. there. And then it happens on the bigger scale. It happens, you know, there's, there's only a handful that, textual critics, that's what they're called. There's a handful of them in the world that, They are the ones that go and they read They'll the parchments when they find the parchments of the Mm -hmm. actual like, say, you know, original manuscripts that were written by the monks and things, they will go and they will decide if it's authentic. And that class I was taught by a textual critic. And and that was one of the most fascinating things because he was probably one of the most open minded Mm -hmm. and recognized how it worked because he had to work with a lot of different denominations too, because of the fact that there's only so many of them that can identify if it's authentic or not. Yeah, um, yeah. and so it's just, there's the more, and that's, that's one of the things I learned from seminary. The more I learned, the less I knew. And I realized how little I knew by the time I was done with seminary, I was like, I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. I know nothing. Like yeah. you can go out, there's some really cool books. Um, if you go onto Amazon, it's called Zondervan published them and they're the counterpoints. And basically what they did is they took deep theological things that, you know, end times. Here are four different views on end times. Here are four different views on the, res- you know, all these different things.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you can read those. And there are original language, highly trained people who will argue their point. And I'll read it and I'll be like, yes. And then I'll read the next one. I'll be like, yes, that makes sense too. And it's just wild to me that these people can be so learned and studied and arrive in different places studying the mm-hmm. exact same thing. And Mm -hmm. that taught me how much I have to have things in an open hand, how much I have Mm -hmm. to like not hold these things closed so tight that I know everything. Um, And I don't know. I I know a drop in the bucket. I know a drop in the bucket and it helps me lean into the mystery of spirituality.
0: Yeah. You know, it... I love that, that it helps you lean into the mystery of spirituality because that is exactly how um, I have to hold spirituality is yes, in Mm -hmm. this like very open understanding that things are changing, understanding that my understanding will deepen as we go on and that's okay. Um, So I love that point. Um, And I have to say one thing before we move on just because it's it's so embarrassing to me that I didn't realize this, but the other hand, like- how would I? No one no one taught me this. Um, after I left Mormonism and I started just inhaling all of these books about like the history of the patriarchy and the history of, yeah. you know, how the religion came in and how it was altered by the cultures and the customs. And uh, I'm reading this, I can't remember which book it was in, but, but they were like, oh yeah, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like those weren't written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, what? And it was like, no, no, that was like Hundreds of years after they passed away, that was written down. It was the yeah. oral tradition had been like just passed and passed. And I was like, so we played yeah. telephone for 200 years yes. before someone wrote it down. Wrote it down. In first person as if they were, what? Like my brain blew Not off. only that,
1: they weren't written in the order that they're in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't written in that order. And there's, you can actually, they think that some of them- Used the other ones to write the the gospels, and so and there's all sorts of theories on that.
0: So, and you can find you can uh, find
1: like if you start you start lighting them up next to each other, it's really interesting. Um, I what could you'll think find you
0: about this like forever, but we need to get back to the story. <laughs> but I just want to be like, and then, but like we're gonna we're gonna move on, we're gonna move on. Oh my god, yeah, so fascinating. Okay, so I want to go. Um, so you went to seminary and then you actually moved, um, churches on purpose because you wanted to work with, I have the wrong name here. Who did you want to work with? Um, oh,
1: seminaries. I had moved my seminary. Okay. Yes. I was with Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, which was a satellite campus at the church I was a part of. And I moved to Southwestern because I wanted to be under Dorothy Patterson. Um, Dorothy Patterson was like one of the founders of, no, I want to say the founder. She was the wife of the founder of kind of this conservative resurgence that happened in the Southern Baptist Convention in 1970s. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's some interesting things going on today that relate back to that, which we can talk about later. Um, If you think that women are not still being silenced, they are, Um, but we'll get to that in a second but anyhow, Paige Patterson was the president of that seminary and his wife was like a big part of that seminary. And she was a spearhead on like a big part of the biblical womanhood movement is what they call it. She was a, one of the women that she was the woman, the, she was the example, um, of what you hold up as that, you know, ideal person. And she did a lot of you know, writing, she did, I actually was published as a a devotional alongside her. It was one she edited. Um, so I was published in that and writing in that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because it, it all happened really fast. How I went from totally sold out on this side for it. And then waking up it, it was interesting because I had, I wanted to write, right. I wanted to be the next Beth Moore. So I was on this path to try to write. And so I had been working hard to like be in seminary because I want to make sure if I was going to teach the Bible, I needed to know the Bible, know how to read it myself and not just trust other people's interpretations. And then I had launched my website, had started pitching proposals. I went to She Speaks, which is like this big um, conference for women who are trying to write in this. um, It's put on by Lisa Turkhurst, um, which funny, I think her ministry is Proverbs 31 Ministries. But I had gone and met with some publishers like Lifeway and um, Hay House, and I had gotten some interest in my manuscript. And this is the fall of 2016, I believe. And I, it was a tumultuous time in our society um, when we were having the election and everything where Donald Trump was elected president. And we, I was in biblical womanhood course. Um, and basically what happened is when I was reading, um, like I was in this class and things, what they did is they had you read like opposing views. And that's a really awesome thing about seminaries. they didn't just make you read their view. They had you read different views and then they would have you write papers against the view that didn't match up to their view. But what at a certain point, like in the beginning, I was like, totally whatever they told me, I took it. And I was like, I soaked soaked it in and I believed it. But there got to a point where I started being able to think for myself in seminary. And I started to know enough to be able to interpret scripture and to be able to like, think on my own and kind of question what I'm being taught. Um, you know, it talks about then scripture testing, you know, your people who are speaking Mm -hmm. to you. Um, I think that means inside the church, not just outside the church, but. I started being able to think for myself and I started reading the books and the books in the biblical womanhood course that they were sharing with me. um, I started to see the one that was on their view, the complementarian view. I'm reading this and I'm like, this is so toxic masculinity. This is so misogynistic. And then I start reading the egalitarian viewpoint, which is the viewpoint that women, no role is dictated by your gender or sex in the church. And you can do anything as a woman. It doesn't have to be, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're equal, true equals. And I'm reading this and I'm like, this makes so much sense to me. Oh my goodness, this is what I think. I can't believe there's other people out there who think this way. And it right. started opening my eyes to realize that I'm not just silently being crazy here and not just questioning, <laughs> you know, because you're, you're looking around and everybody believes this one thing and you're like, what's happening? And, and as I went through that course, the opposite of what I think they wanted to happen, happened. And I started to yeah. realize, oh my goodness, I am not a complimentarian. I remember a friend of mine, like texted another friend of mine when she saw a Twitter, a tweet I put up. A Twitter, ha, huh, that's funny. Um, a tweet. We're young and hip. We're so cool.
0: I'm so cool. We posted a Twitter. It's like my husband always says, like, yep, and I looked it up on the interwebs, and I'm like, oh my god, stop. <laughs> Just stop saying that. <laughs> I had I had posted a
1: tweet. You know, it took me a while to be able to speak out about this stuff, but I posted a little tweet and she texted my friend and was like, I don't is Dominique so complimentarian? And my friend was like, if you want to know, ask her, text her, call her. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, if you're not talking to me, you wouldn't know, but like, yeah, no, maybe I am shifting my views a little bit. Um, But yeah, it's, it was interesting because I wanted to study under, under her and I wanted to, I I thought that I lined up fully with her and I realized I didn't. And so I basically backed away really fast. Like I had launched a website. I was posting blogs. I was getting out there. I was building an email list. I was pitching proposals. I was getting published under this thing. And all of a sudden I realized, Oh, wait a second. My name is going to be permanently attached Mm -hmm. to something that I don't know if I really believe and I fully line up with. And so I took a step back and I just dropped it all. I just, just, it was kind of quick in a way it wasn't quick, but it was quick. So beginning of 2017, I just took steps back and I was like, I need to figure out what I believe before I keep I keep putting myself out there in permanent print.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I still like the first time you told me this, I was like, that is such a ballsy move on the on the part of the church. And I still think that, um, with, you know, going into a complementary class and then them handing you, um, egalitarian material for you to read, like in the, in the Mormon church, it's like, no, 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 don't read anything that's contrary to our views because that could, you know, Satan can influence you through those materials and that would be scary. So, so interestingly enough in
1: the church, they preach that. So I've had arguments with people like in the church that I was like, hey, like, why don't you read this? No, no, I don't want to be led astray. I can't. And I go, go, do you really think your God is that small that you can't read something and be able to interpret it yourself? And she's like, no, 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 I don't want to be led astray. But I think in the seminaries, they're maybe giving you a little bit more... I think they think that you're so already lined up with their stuff that you're not going to get swayed, and oh, you're interesting. just going to learn how to argue Combat. against it so that yeah. you know you got to be prepared so you can have arguments against it because that's what my I have to do. I'm supposed to write a paper against those yeah, this thing that you're like, wait a second, I
0: like this. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Uh, no, that that really is. That's a good. Um, clarification point. Cause yeah, I was like, you've got to be kidding me, but that makes, that makes more sense that that in, for in the church, it's like, no, 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 like don't be led astray. And I love your response. Like, do you really think your God is so small? Cause that's how I, I'm like, if, am I really that like sad and weak that I, you know, like I can't read something that's untrue and be like, that's untrue. But really that kind of opens up another can of worms too, because I feel like, and I think we may have hit on this in your pre-interview, but I don't remember. Um, I feel like the church does, hmm, okay, I got to come at this from two ways. Oh, we did talk about this because, okay. So in some ways, the church teaches us how to use our intuition. And I know you experienced that when you joined and started feeling that connection to God and a higher power, and you were like, oh, this is something that I resonate with, right? Yes. At the yes. same time, mm-hmm. they're also teaching us not to use our intuition. Like, it's Correct. like, no, 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 shut that down. Shut, those aren't feelings you're supposed to have. That's not accurate. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, the way that I would have described my growing up was... Um, if you feel something that I'm going to now call intuition and higher self and all those things, but they, but at that point would have been called feeling the spirit, right? When you feel the spirit and it lines up with our teachings. Oh, thank God. Holy be like you have felt the spirit, but if you feel not okay with something, you are being led astray by Satan and this yes. is very confusing yes. and ties us all mm-hmm. up in so many knots that we're like, I don't even know how to think for myself anymore. Like, how can Satan I Satan is
1: definitely anything? always leading you astray. Satan yeah. is definitely always leading you astray. Yes. So it keeps it's us Satan, in a constant Satan's, state of fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're yeah. always, anything that's like not contrary, it's Satan who's attacking you and whispering in your ear mm-hmm. and leading you and trying to like. I don't know, cause division, cause whatever. Um, but yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like, yeah. So yeah. how did that, i state affair.
0: how, how, how did this affect you? Cause I know it did. So you have, you, you come into church and you find some, some good things because you were coming out of self-harm and self-destruction. And I think that's an important point to make. Um, but at the same time, you're immediately being silenced. Like, no, you can't lead men. You are too loud. You're not dressing properly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, you can have, you know, you can have this breadcrumb, but, like, no more. How did this affect you? Like, looking back in hindsight, what was what was the fallout of this? And we have more points to cover for sure, and you might hit on some of these, but, like. um, So the fallout,
1: you mean, like. The I mean
0: like, I mean, like, how did it affect you in your, let's say, using your own voice and your own thoughts? Mm,
1: oh, my goodness. Oh, it was tough. Um Like, it was, when I came out of the church, it felt like I was coming out of a cult. 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't listen to secular music. Like I only listened to Christian music. I didn't even realize how much I listened to Christian music. And only listened to Christian music. And I remember one day when I was driving on the highway after I kind of had started to leave the church and free myself, and I'm listening to 97 Rock, like X here, which is like a a alternative station. And I'm listening to like Imagine Dragons and like all, and I'm like loving it. I'm like this music is so good. I love it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Not that I didn't like the Christian music too, but I like really didn't even realize how much I controlled. What I remember reading, reading some of the novels I was reading and I was like, is it okay to read young adult novels? Is it okay to read, uh, Cassandra mm-hmm. Clare's, uh, Mortal Instruments was one yeah. of the ones I was reading. I remember specifically in that book, I was like, I don't know if it's okay for me to read this, but I love it. I'm going to keep reading. Um, it, it was even speaking out or saying something publicly online. I was very afraid I have, I'm still getting over social media anxiety because of if I said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing, I would get chast. Someone would message me. Someone would say something to me. Someone would question me. Someone would call me right. out. Like if you said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing. And so right. I lived with this control. It was a mind control. It controlled right. my mind inside my head without anyone there. Like yes. I controlled it. And yes. It's this weird thing where you just like, I can't, you know, you're afraid of. And I will tell you up until at least a year or two years ago, like I was still dealing with that governor that was in my head yeah. that I had, it's hard to break away. I mean, it took therapy. It took therapy. Yeah. It took therapy. Yeah. I was sitting in therapy because the Baptist church, um, especially the seminary level, they don't believe in secular counseling. Like, psychology like the field of psychology we're licensed psychologists mm-hmm. because i think it has a lot to do with the homosexuality and how they do not say it's wrong i think that's part of it there's other things too but okay um, tie the tie, i didn't track that connection tie that together how, how so does secular connect? Si- so so regular like a psychiatrist in the dsm they don't say that my, um homosexuality is like a mental oh. illness oh
0: Oh, I see. So th- you're saying that they're against um, counseling. The church is against. Yeah,
1: I think that's a. I, I think that's a catalyst. Is,
0: is because they don't the say gonna it to be like it's fine that you're gay, and the church is like, but it's not. Right, I. I and see, they don't I say see. it. Okay.
1: They don't say it. I think there's other things too. There's other things too, but I think that's one of the ones. Um, because they have they they believe in biblical counseling and that all scripture is like powerful for reproof and you know fixing people and there's this whole line called new counseling that was um, started by jay adams and he basically was like all those mental health illnesses are based on sin it's all sin you know so when you are struggling when you're and he gives this like example of a woman who was in like a psychiatric hospital and the reason she was struggling was actually because of her sin not because of a mental health illness and so if you could get to the root of the sin and root out the sin then you can heal the person and so oh, they, God. so I was sitting in regular psychologists, like an actual licensed therapist office going through my therapy to overcome all the things that I've been programmed to believe. And I'm sitting there looking at her going, they don't believe in what I'm doing right now. Like I'm sitting here in therapy and this is actually not something they believe in, but I'm doing it and I believe in it. And like, I had to like process that out loud because right. I'm like, wow. Okay. It's okay. It's okay that I'm doing this. It's okay that I'm in secular counseling. Like it, it's, it's wild how much it controls your mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk about that. The, the depression and and this belief in biblical counseling, um, Mm -hmm. because it's, I think it needs to be addressed, especially for, for women who are sitting in exactly the same spot that you were, which is like, I need help, but this is wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So you – okay, so you at some point – we're hopping all over here, guys, on her on her timeline, and I'm doing it on purpose because I wanted to uh, be able to really lean into these topics. So we're just going to kind of uh, ebb and flow here. So you started struggling with depression um, yes. again really badly. Was it after the birth of your twins?
1: Yeah. It was after the birth of my so- twins. It's interesting because the twins – it was postpartum, but it also tied up with the church and everything falling apart with the church too. So it it was – there was a couple things that hit at the same time. It was my kids um, were like born, so that triggered some postpartum depression. Yeah. And then I was dealing with the church situation and starting to realize how misogynistic and patriarchal it was and how much they don't respect women at all, um, unless you're a certain kind of woman. And then I was also dealing with um, the other thing, the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement was happening. And mm-hmm. so that was re-traumatizing in itself too. It was a wonderful, beautiful thing, but it also made us as a society wrestle with things that I maybe thought were more healed. Um, oh, things yeah. that I thought were better than they were. Um, it, it, it was a jolt. Uh, a waking up kind of, so to speak, collectively, where we as a, a nation had to grapple with the way we treated women, period. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was re traumatizing in itself. So I was in therapy and I think it exasperated the postpartum. And it's interesting because I, I, my therapist, I remember she's like, you might, after six months, I'm like, am I depressed? Should I maybe take medication? And she's like, yes yes, here, here's a prescription. And I, cause you know, you got it. It's not just like they just give you and you take, you have to make the decision to take it too. And so I take that prescription home and I get home and I'm like, after I pick it up the pharmacy, right. I'm like, I, I'm like, no, no, I can beat this. I can still beat this. I can beat this with God. And like, I felt like it was linked to my faith in God my ability to overcome this depression because of the way I've been programmed about how all these mental health issues are all related to, you know, sin or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. or faith in God. And it's interesting because it took me a whole year. It took me a year of suffering in my depression and in my, in my, um, you know, just, it was really bad. And my poor family had to deal with it too, to actually start taking the medication. And when I finally started taking the medication, I went to church like that same week Sat in a sermon, and the pastor from the pulpit says, You know why we have all these people who are on antidepressants and they're depressed and they're struggling? It's because they don't have enough faith in God. And I'm like, Oh my God. And I just started crying. I just started crying. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, This is why. This is what's wrong. This is the problem. This is what took me one whole year to finally deal with it and help myself. Um, And so, yeah, it was, it was, it's a, it's a total mind, a mind thing. And it, it, yeah you know, but I stuck to it. I kept the medication and I eventually left the church and I'm healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I got
0: over the depression. God, it's just, it's so, it's horrifying um, to me because I, so I have a couple of drums that I beat really hard all the time. And one of them mm-hmm. is the connection um, to, with shame and so many problems that we deal with, including the depression. Like shame feeds everything. Like it Mm -hmm. makes everything so much worse and it makes it almost, I want to say impossible, but I'll say, I'll give a caveat and say almost impossible uh, to heal anything when you're drowning in shame. And so now you have an organization that is Mm -hmm. handling depressed people both from the pulpit and in individual counseling. Because we have biblical counselors and they won't say anything that's outside of, you know, what the Bible says. Yeah. And really at the core, what they're doing is we're just heaping shovelfuls of more shame and more mm-hmm. guilt onto mm-hmm. the depressed person. Yeah. Making it impossible it's for your them fault. to heal. Yeah. But ever the more dependent on church. Yes. Right? Ever yeah. the more dependent on the thing that is damaging them, Mm -hmm. The most. And it's Mm -hmm. horrifying to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: It's a lot of control. It's all for control. And I don't even know if they realize it. That's the thing
0: that's interesting. Like I don't think that they do. Here's my opinion. I think that I think that not everybody in the church realizes it. I think that there Mm -hmm. are people lower down, right, that are just doing what they're told going through the motions, incognitive dissonance, like being like, no, I want to do what's right. And this is what I'm being told is right. Absolutely. But I think at some point up the hierarchical level that stops because they know, this is my opinion, everybody, and I'm going to let Dominique here disagree if she does, which is totally fine. At some level, you get high enough up that you start to realize that a organization that is that large must be controlled is the only way to hold an organization that large in place. And there are certain mechanisms that work really well for control. And shame and guilt and fear are at the top of that list. And so at some point you start to realize what mechanisms are being used in order to mm-hmm. keep the structure in place.
1: So it's interesting. I I'm not sure if they're that aware at that at the high level. I think they truly uh-huh. genuinely believe that Mm -hmm. they are, they believe the things that they're saying. They believe that the men have this God-given right who are the ones to be leading and they're the ones that are blessed and they're the ones that are supposed to do this. And I don't know, I'm not sure if they realize how they're controlling, but they know it, that it's a, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if they actually know it. I feel like the entire institution that from from back in Roman times, I think they yeah. knew it, and yeah. I think they just kept growing and building. And you've mm-hmm. got people so sold out for these beliefs. It's because it's tied into the spiritual. They believe that they're right. you know the leaders, the men are the leaders. Like I just for ex- you know I, I I didn't know if we we're gonna bring this up or not. I didn't know when to bring it up, but they just had they just kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. They just kicked out um, the second largest church, Saddleback church in California. Um, Rick Warren was the pastor of that church. He went to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and he wrote The Purpose-Driven Life. You've probably heard of it, right? Have you heard of The Purpose-Driven Life? Oh, I don't know that I have. It was like a New York Times bestseller. It was like one of those big books that took off. It was probably 10 years ago, but it was all about like this. Maybe it wasn't, I don't know. I think it was a New York Times bestseller. It was one of those big books. I wasn't even a Christian when I heard about this book. Mm -hmm. And... He had, has one of the largest churches, second largest churches in the Southern Baptist denomination, but he's retired now, but they have a female teaching pastor. And there was two churches that had, one was run by a female, a reverend, um, and the other one, because Rick's church has like many pastors, but they had one female pastor and she was put in charge of, I think the mothership, the main campus for Saddleback when he, when he retired and they kicked him out. And Rick Warren stood up and actually um, went and argued to have them, him and the the female pastor for that of the church, to argue how this is not an issue that should divide us just because we're interpreting something differently than you are. But the convention, almost unanimous, like very strongly voted to kick them out. And some of the voices... Like Al Moeller, he was one of the big voices writing the counterpoint and he's the head of one of the other Southern Baptist, Theolo- some one of the other seminaries, um, said this issue was settled 30 years ago. So remember how I mentioned 30 years ago, they kind of had this big conservative research. Well, not, I don't yeah. know if it's 30 years ago, but it was like the 1970s. So it's more than 30 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. But they had this big, um, it went from 1970 to 1991. It was kind of a, you know, so that's why he's probably saying 30 years ago. But basically he was like, this was settled 30 years ago and women, you know, cannot be pastors. They cannot be in leadership. And so they doubled down on this just yesterday. Wow. Like in the, in the majority of the convention voted to kick out Saddleback, Saddlebrook and Saddleback, I think it is, Saddleback Church and this other church. I don't know the name of it. It was a smaller church. So yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's, I'm like watching it live. I'm like, Oh, look, it's alive and well, still going great. Exactly. Super strong there.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: I think it's human nature, right? Is when we, um, have a belief system and people around us or culture or society, whatever starts to expand in a different direction, some people will move with it and the rest of the people just double down harder in an attempt to cling to what they know and what they believe and, and yeah mm-hmm. so it is so awful that it just happened yesterday and yet so like of course it did like of course it yeah did. Of I, course
1: I want to read a quick quote did, of you know? what rick warren yes, said please. to everybody he
0: said there are
1: people who want to take the sbc back to the 1950s when white men ruled supreme and when the woman's place was in the home there are others who want to take it back 500 years to the time of the reformation he said i say we need to take the church back to the first century the church at its birth was the church at its best mm. but so you know i just women, thought it was were women interesting that he to teach at that point or you know i i think they actually were like i i think that's what he's yeah. trying to say is that at that point there were women that were teaching like lydia
0: yeah.
1: um and 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 different ones so i think i think that's what yeah. he's saying wow. um but i just thought Beautiful. it was interesting cuz i'm like and that is a white man getting up and calling out
0: um yeah. thank god you know yeah white men. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is yeah. what's needed. Um, I mean, it is it is part of the process of, mm-hmm. of us finding our voices is not only taking our voices back and demanding our voices back, but also having allies that can help switch, you know, societal norms and rules and, and customs. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna flip us really quick because we're talking about voices and women's voices and whether or not they're allowed to lead. Um, Because of the position where you were the director of connections and you had to, you know, call them all pastors so you didn't forget your place in life, um, you were in a lot of meetings that were men only meetings. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about what that was like, what was happening. And how that also kind of led to your waking up of like this isn't a good place for me.
1: Okay, well they had um, they had these weekly meetings and it was with all the pastors and so of course it's all men Um, and there was like twenty eight pastors for the one and then they had a smaller team that was like the leadership team and it was like eight pastors who were like the head past like the top pastors advising the senior pastor and so basically I would you know they would have um, directors I was a director. Um, and so they would have directors come in and speak to the group sometimes. And I, I worked with them a little bit more often than normal. So one of the pastors actually, he's like, I thought you were an executive director because I worked with them more. Um, but you know, it was interesting because in those meetings, I had one of the, one of the pastors, he was, he was awesome. He would always, he's like, I kept trying to stand up and like talk over them so that you could talk. Cause they would just talk over you every time you would speak. So I would always be sitting in these meetings. And again, I'm like trying to, um, be respectful and make sure I'm not overly loud or not gentle and not quiet and, you know, know my place. And, and I would just, you know, when I got a chance, I would speak up, but I always felt like I needed to hold back, like hold back. So, you know, the whole like lean in that book by, um, the Facebook executive, I think it was Cheryl, um. Oh, something. Mm-hmm. it she talked about leaning in, like women. We need to speak up and lean in. Uh. Uh-uh, that was not how it worked in there. It was like I needed to be like make sure I knew my place. And sometimes I didn't get to say what I needed to say, because it was just the good old boys club.
0: Yeah. So was it? I know in the Mormon Church, um, it's interesting. Like, yeah, certain women are allowed in certain meetings. That is, yeah, yes, the one or two women where it's mostly men. And I talked to um, a friend of mine, her name's Kira, also episodes up, you should check it out. Uh, but she had this experience a lot where she'd go into these meetings. And it was like, she was allowed to speak kind of, but same thing, we're going to get talked over. And then at the end of the day, it didn't really matter what she said or what her opinion was like, we were going to go with what the boys wanted always like it yes. was overridden. Yeah. Was that the same?
1: Yeah, yeah, no. If if I if they didn't all agree with me, no. Like maybe they agreed with me. Sometimes they agreed with me, you know. But it would, it yeah. They had to make the decisions. Like it was, I was an advisor. I was giving some information. Right.
0: Um, and I was going it it to say, wasn't an advisor or just information sharer? Information sharer. <laughs> it was an information sharer. <laughs> advisor carries more weight, right? And women, it does. We it does. Do that. Oh my god. It mm-hmm. is amazing to me to look back and and your experience is so similar to mine and I think the way we both emotionally process things um, mm-hmm. where we look at just how much of our voices we shut down in order to try to fit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on your way out, and we haven't even talked about like what triggered the faith crisis, just that there obviously was one. So hopefully we'll get back around to that. But on your way out, has it been difficult for you to find that voice again? Hmm. You mean my voice? So yeah, I'll share so for me, it was it was very difficult for me to not be ashamed of my voice. So like I would claim it, right. Cause I hadn't been able to claim it for so long. So I would speak mm-hmm. my thoughts and I would put my foot down and I would draw boundaries. And, and, it, but at the same time, it was always followed up by shame of, if mm-hmm. it's too much. It's too loud. I'm, you know, I'm angry or I'm mm-hmm. this or I'm that. And it took a really mm-hmm. long time for me to find that voice and accept and love that voice as beautiful and not something mm-hmm. to hide or be ashamed of. So I'm wondering what your experience <clears throat> was like coming yeah. out.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. I think that's what I when I described the coming out of the cult um, experience. I definitely felt like I wrestled with a lot of it. Not publicly, I kind of shut down yeah. from everything and everyone. I went off social media completely. I did not, um, and this was right after we did talk a little bit about what caused the faith crisis. And it was all kind of at the same time when I was in that biblical womanhood course, and I started to realize that I did not align up with what I was being taught. And then I also saw a lot of other stuff happening where the misogyny and patriarchy that was so deeply rooted in the church just came to light very clearly. Um, and you know, I basically, um, had to step back. And when I stepped back, I just shut down. I shut down. I turned off social media. I like quit talking to people. I kind of just had to go inward because I had to figure out what I thought for myself without other voices feeding into it. Mm -hmm. And that took a little time to just be able to think for myself. And not be controlled by scripture and not be controlled by the church and not be controlled by what I was told and what I'm supposed to believe and what they might think of me if I think this or I say this. Because, you know, there were just a lot of um, things in my life that I was afraid of because to do because I didn't want to offend or break the rules at all. And so yeah. it it took a while. And And then when I started going back on social media, it took a while for me to be able to just be myself. And yeah. anything, anything I knew that was contrary to what they might believe or they were okay with. Like, here's the thing. I probably would have been a, when I started reading Young Adult, because I ended up writing, I'm, I'm a writer. I did get to pursue my dream. Yes,
0: Yay. which is amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. But um, even when I decided to start writing fiction and novels, I had to go to therapy. I had to go to therapy and ask, like, is it okay? I'm not, I'm not in ministry anymore. And now it is, how can I like process that this is okay to write books? Cause I was still like trying to serve God. And, you know, yeah. I had to like, I have this whole journal over there where I had this picture with a candle and it was like, why would be writing? And I, I even found my notes from one of my other therapy sessions. Like I, it took me a while to be okay with writing fiction, like right. writing novels instead of writing books about the Bible and scripture. Right. And so that took a while. So yes, finding my voice, like I couldn't even write a I had to convince myself it's okay to write a book. And mm-hmm. I during the time that I was reading, I read like I just fell in love with young adult fiction and I read like a hundred books in a year. And I probably would have become a book blogger at that point, but I was afraid to put the books I was reading out on the internet because they oh. were all like magic books and fantasy books. And I didn't know what they would think of me. I didn't know what people would think of me, you know, because they're, right. like, I have a book on my shelf over here about, like, Harry Potter, Twilight, and the Lord of the Rings. Like, what's the difference, and why are some of them, like, you know, witchcraft tools to convince your kids, and the other one is, like, Lord of the Rings is okay. Um, C.S. Lewis is okay, too. But, like, yeah. <laughs> I was afraid. I was afraid to talk about that stuff publicly. It it took a yeah. long time, and, and it was stages to... Even when I was writing, even when I was already like switching into writing young adult novels, I was scared and I had to think about like, would it be okay um, for any, you know, what is it okay? Like, I, what would they think of me? What would they think of me? And I actually had to get over that. And and I actually yeah. wrote um, in my series, uh, the EverBeat series, books two and book three, I have a main character that's a main point of view and she is the daughter of a some major mega church pastors and she has to find in herself and find her path on her own compared to what she's been raised in and i took on that biblical womanhood um belief system and she had to decide for herself if she really lined up with that or not
0: i love and that. i had to I, and huh i love well i think i, I think you were just going to say it when we talked you were explaining how much processing you did writing that character yes I and a lot of healing
1: huge. A lot of healing came from that for me, like writing that character, a lot of healing and a lot of understanding. So I was writing her last year. I was still processing last year what I thought and I believed and honestly putting it on the page and seeing it come out in a fictional world, but kind of seeing the views opposed, it really helped me solidify my views and my voice. And so um, it's interesting because actually one of the quotes on the front of the second book is truth has a voice. You know, and mm-hmm. it was true for one of the other, both characters in that book, um, cause it's two points of view. Um, they're, they're wrestling with their own truth and discovering their fight, finding their voice. And, yeah. and that was
0: really important for my character to kind of walk through and, and experience and understand. Yeah. I love that so much because I think I would say to, you know, anyone listening who is having struggle processing, uh, you don't have to write a fiction book, although writing a fiction book is a fantastic way of processing. <laughs> Same, like I can't even tell you how many times I've typed something and I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> like that's a okay." Um, but writing, yeah, writing is therapeutic, no matter what you do. It is, yeah. Like, whether you're journaling or writing short stories or whatever it is, like it is so therapeutic, to, especially in finding that voice because it takes away the the blocks. It, and especially if you're writing fiction, because now it's not you, right? In quotation. Right. Um, it's it's another character. And so the blocks yeah. of what you were struggling with, which is it's not okay to say that. It's not okay to think that. And it's not okay yes. to feel that. You can mm-hmm. express that through a character.
1: and Or putting that war in the character. Like having that yeah. character go through that experience, you know, and taking... Yes. Because, I mean, I think every single fiction book out there has a piece of every author in them. Like it's always an amalgam, you know, it's never one person. It's never one thing, but there's a part of you in every character. Right. And so, and, and it was Mark Twain. I think he said, "Write What you know. And I think a lot of that is also right. The emotional experience that, you know, right. The, the, -hmm. it's not just the, I know accounting. So I'm going to write about numbers. It's Mm -hmm. about the experiences that you've had in your life. And Mm -hmm. you can really pour a lot of authenticity into that if you can, write a character from experience you had or researched a ton you know you obviously can research like crazy and get in the mind of a character but with um with this yeah it was very cathartic for me and it helped me process and also see the character struggling with same things I struggled with just a few years ago and so that was interesting to put on the page
0: oh beautiful I have a client. I'm only telling the story for people who are wanting to maybe use this as a tool to heal. Cause I love that you brought it up and I think it's really important. Um, I have someone that I am working with and she had a horrible real life experience um, that was very traumatic. And she's, you know, is doing a lot of charity work around this, but she's also trying to write a book. And she told me that she had one editor tell her, why don't you write this in a uh, third person instead of, first because she mm-hmm. was having such a hard time getting the emotion out of her and getting mm. the full truth out of herself and I was like, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you were okay with rewrite cuz she's trying to publish, right? and not just for fun. But like, as long as you were okay with switching it back to first person, that was such a fabulous suggestion because yeah. it does exactly what we're talking about. It allows you to distance yourself just enough to process yeah. this and to find your voice. So, yeah, um, I think that's that's just brilliant. Like, thank you for, for sharing that. You said something, you said,
1: you what thing to really sh- I want to add in yeah, there yeah, please. is
0: that my journey, like where I'm at
1: right now is seven years after I left the church. And so, um, it's, I am just now getting to a place of healing. I think last year um, I think writing that character was kind of the culmination of it, but yeah. it, it was a journey. It, it, and anyone who's listening, who's thinking about leaving, you know, give yourself grace, um, because it takes time. It takes time to yeah. all those mental holds that are on you. Like it takes time to, um, break out of them. It really does. Yes.
0: Yes. And I le- thank you for saying that. Cause that was exactly where I wanted to go was the mental holds. Cause you said something really mm. important. You said that you had to shut down to figure out what I thought. Yes. And that is exactly like, well, I want to talk about that. Cause I know I went through, I don't even know how long it took. Mm-hmm. I had done a lot of deconstructing, but then I had a good few years of I would react to something like, oh, this isn't okay, or this is bad, or this, and I would have to mm-hmm. stop and be like, do I actually think that's bad? Do I actually mm-hmm. disagree with this, and why? So talk to yeah. us a little bit about that shutdown period for you, if you can, and what that looked like to help people along. Um
1: It was, well, I was, I was really depressed, too, so that adds to it, All right. but- Um, I just really, I, I honestly cut off everyone from the church. Basically, like I am not really friends with anyone that goes to that church or works at that church. Like, not them. We're not friends. Um, but I don't communicate with them now. There was, and the only friends that I did keep were the ones that left. Um, the the one challenge is that my family stayed, and that was a that was trouble. Um, I did ended up not talking on my husband's side of the family. I ended up kind of not communicating with them for a little while, but now we're good. We, we've moved past all of that, Mm -hmm. but, um, it, it looked like cutting people off and developing new friends and developing new friends groups. And I went to other churches, you know, I watched programs. I read books. I, gosh, it's so crazy. Cause there's some books I read that just opened my mind in so many different ways. I looked at different ways of thinking about things, different theologies. I've looked at different spirituality stuff. I've yeah. just started to take in what else was out there and then not tested against what the church was t- teaching me, but I was able to test it against what I thought. And I, and I, I did change my friend group. Like I did change my friend group and it, was the best thing I ever did. And my therapist actually suggested it. She's like, do you have any friends that are, aren't in the church? And I'm like, I have some. And I started focusing in on those friends and kind of removing myself from the, um, and that was hard. It was hard because it's a grieving period. You yeah. grieve, you grieve, you, it's a loss. You've lost a way of life. You've lost a spiritual thing. And and that's why we talked about this a little bit, Debri. but I think that's why it has such a hold on you because it's not just tied to your Like it's, it's spiritual. It's, it's deep. It's, it's life. The stakes are high. This is eternity we're talking about. And so, um, a way of life. And so that was the kind of stuff that it, I had to go through a grieving period. And there were a lot of friendships and people I lost that, you know, you just have to let go of and learn how to like, let them go. Yeah. And And that took time. Yeah, yeah, it was painful. It was very painful. It was Absolutely. extremely painful, and I was very angry. I had a very angry face. It was extremely angry for a while, and I was like, I would go be like the brood of vipers. <laughs> oh, like you mean about like the, your
0: friend group that you left, or just like- the church, the church, the church okay. in general.
1: I was like, I felt like Jesus and the money changers and like flipping tables, and like uh, I just had this anger inside.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that's what my really husband's like, enemy. wow. I think it's important that we address that, though, because there is this thought that's taught so effectively in the church, which is angry women are bad. Yeah, you know, and so to be yeah. able to feel the feelings of mm-hmm. that anger now to to live there forever is unhealthy for you, um, right? Right. But to process that is really necessary.
1: Yes, it's a, it's one of the stages of grief. It's one of the Absolutely. stages to get through your grief. And so I had to process it and I you know, holding on to the anger is actually what I think was a little more destructive. I probably should have let go of it sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me a while to forgive. It really did. And I held on to I held on to it for a while. That was the last thing to go. And that was the That's hardest thing the to let go of so that I could get to a place of forgiveness which gave me freedom you know it really wasn't because i'm like forgiving you because i want you back in my life church but really forgiving my like being able to like not be angry that was that was the hardest phase that was the mm-hmm. hardest thing to let go of absolutely because it was so yeah. much was tied up into it my career was tied up into. It. i left accounting at deloitte to go work in the church there was one point where i was at the church seven days a week i'd be there for seminary on saturday i'd be there for sunday um, for church. And then I'd be there Monday through Friday for work. So I would be right. there every single day. Like it was my life.
0: It was my right. life. Right. Mm. Okay. I want to talk about, I know I still have several things here that I don't want to miss mainly because it's interesting, but also mainly, mainly because there are, there's so much help here for people, um, in understanding why it's so hard to get out. Mm-hmm. Like it's so mm-hmm. hard to lose everything like you did. Yeah. And yeah. you know that, like as you leave, like you yeah. know what's going yeah. to happen. And yeah. that is so painful. Um, but the other part that makes it really hard is how indoctrinated you are, which we've covered. Um, but specifically I wanna turn back to the modesty and purity culture because okay. for you so you started remembering sexual abuse you start you then had a mm-hmm. a date rape and then you moved into the church culture and you did briefly yeah. mention this where you said all of these women who have their purity yes and you said this to me in the pre-interview and oh god like it just hurt my heart both times yeah um but it's important to to look at this. And I want you to kind of talk about what this actually did to you and how this kept you in and got you in a little bit deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to find words that are heavy enough for what this is. And what it's doing is it's making me stammer around um, instead of going to where I need to go. But I just can't find the words that are heavy enough for the manipulation Around this subject. So I'm going to let yeah. you kind of talk about what it actually did to you. Um, mm-hmm. And stop talking in circles. So, <laughs>
1: Yeah. So I think I always felt like I could never. It, it was interesting because you're single and you're in this like these groups with these young professionals and a lot of people date each other. And, you know, I always felt like I didn't measure up to the other women who had been raised in the church and they had, you know, been given, you know, when you think about it, it's like, okay, purity, it's like the most, you know, hold this up as this like standard. And I'm like, well, I never had that chance. Like I was, I didn't get that chance. Like I didn't have that choice, you know, was made for me. And so you feel a lot of shame. You already have a lot of shame you carry from the abuser, right? That's one of the things you are trying to get over as a survivor of abuse. But then now you've got the church shame on you because there's nothing you can ever do to ever make that choice. And you feel like less than these other women who have been... And it's not like anyone says that to you. It's just the way it's talked about that it makes you feel that way, if it makes sense. It's not like anyone goes, oh, this woman's amazing. That's a good woman. That's a bad woman. No, 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 no. It's way more subversive than that. It's way more... It's the way they talk about it, like just the, even the fact that they call it the excellent wife in Proverbs 31, and they talk mm-hmm. about just that gentle, quiet spirit. That's what makes you, you know, in, in your, you that purity culture is like, if you have your purity, then you're good. And you're like, I mean, they have, like, there were some dating books that were written about it that were like extreme, extreme, like don't even kiss until you're married. You know, they yes. get like really intense about this, like holding your purity thing. And it's like held up as this like standard. And funny thing is actually one of those guys who wrote that book, it was like, I think "A Kissed Dating Goodbye was the name of the book. And it was one of the ones that was like a big thing in the Christian movement. And he, yeah, I think he ended up getting divorced and like kind of renouncing the book that he wrote, um, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, everybody's so programmed to believe that that is the pinnacle. Like sex is such a it's so interesting the sins they choose to be like, okay, if you don't do these things, you're okay. Okay. So mm-hmm. if you are like married and you don't get divorced and you have, you know, don't have sex before you get married, and you know, there's these big sins that they decide are the ones, but anything else that's you know, that that's bad. Like it, it's yeah. it's kind of interesting um how. There's such this war on purity, but then you you fast forward to two thousand and you know eighteen nineteen, and we've got the Me Too movement going on in the country, and then we've got the Church Too movement going on, which was a a secondary movement that triggered by Me Too, where women who had been abused in churches spoke out, and there was a culture, especially the Southern Baptist Convention, particularly, where if like a pastor sometimes it would happen where if a pastor was accused of sexual abuse instead of like getting you know making him not be a pastor anymore and like charging him with crimes or whatever they would just quietly sh- put it under the rug and move him to another church and that new church would not know anything about what he had done um page patterson was removed from southwestern baptist theological seminary the guy who spearheaded this whole like anti-woman thing and has you know in leadership kind of thing He was removed because basically a lot of women came out during this church two time um, and said that they were raped on campus. And the way that it was handled was like, well, you shouldn't have been, you shouldn't have been wearing that. You shouldn't have been out at night. You know, you shouldn't have let that guy in your house. Like it was like very much the woman's fault that these things happened. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, 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 the purity culture is dangerous in a lot of ways, um, and it goes deeper than because it's 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 like I don't know it's just so such a big deal that you like sex is such a thing that is 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 like bad 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 anti anti you know what I mean even to the point where people when they get married struggle I've talked to couples. And girlfriends of mine that struggle, because I didn't grow up in that, right? But I talked to girlfriends of mine who grew up in it, that when they got married, they struggled to have sex because okay. they were told their whole life that sex was bad. Exactly. No sex, no sex, bad sex. And then uh, they yeah. get married <laughs> and it's like, well, I'm this is bad. I'm not supposed to do it. You know? And so it's like, I was like, wait,
0: no, now, now you can, it's all good now. <sighs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's a huge part of my story is, yeah, sex is bad. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. Have a good time. Wait, what? Like, I've been scared of this for my whole life, and now it's like, oh, and the now world supposed to do that. this. Yeah, you can't do that. Like, it's not how brains work, you know. Yeah. Oh god. So I liked your your word choice um, when you said that it's not it's not taught, you know, in your face. It's taught subvers- subversively, and yes. that's really important because that is exactly why when we leave, uh, you and I and a million other women have trouble deconstructing those thought patterns and have trouble untangling the spider's web in our head because it has gone in subversively. It's gone in beneath Mm -hmm. the surface where all of a sudden we don't know why we can't think anymore and we don't know why we can't decide what's good or bad anymore and we don't know why. Like we just feel awful inside and we feel like everything's our fault and I am bad and we are bad and I am inherently dirty. Mm -hmm. Um, and I yeah. think what, what I found so interesting about your story was that, that you were primed to be more affected by those teachings in the way that it related to your unworthiness.
1: Yes. A hundred percent. Um, I, I met with a woman when I first started going to the church for therapy, um, she was getting her license. I can't remember if it was legit, like an actual license license or if it was, um, biblical counseling, but she was doing her intern hours. And I, um, I remember like reading scripture about how Jesus washed me white as snow. Jesus has cleaned me. And like, cause I felt so dirty and so wrong. And I had to like, you know, continually tell myself that I have been washed clean of my sins and washed clean of this childhood that I had been through and things that had happened to me.
0: I have to point out before you continue, and I'm sorry that I just interrupted this particular sentence. However, how fucked up is it that you felt you needed to be washed clean at all of someone else's actions? You did not sexually abuse yourself. You did not rape yourself. You were not complicit in any of those situations or choices. And yet Mm -hmm. You carried the guilt and shame of the and the need to be washed clean. A hundred percent, I did. I carried that guilt
1: and shame. So I'm dealing with double shame. I'm dealing with the shame of the ch- like what the church is telling me is right and good, and I'm dealing with the shame of of what happened to me. And and that's a lot of what came out with the church to movement with people who think about the ones that got abused by pastors. And so actually the DOJ um, did a really deep investigation kind of like they did on the Catholic church in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, they did that on the Southern Baptist church uh, convention just recently. It's kind of been a little bit more quiet. You haven't seen mm-hmm. it in the news as much but they just did a whole investigation on wow. um their practices and how they handle it because it was such a it just wasn't done well they were they were they it came from the top it came from that misogynistic viewpoint of of women and that that toxic masculinity where it's like women's fault like you can it's just it's just crazy some of the things that you would hear pastors say um about women or just, and it's, it's funny. Cause it's like, I can't even think of it right now because it's so subtle. Like it's so subtle that you don't even realize it later. Um, it was, it's, it's, it's just interesting to me because you, that's why you look back. You're like, how did I, how did I, cause I, I didn't grow up in this. Yes, I chose right. this. I walked into this, you know, but my shame, I think I, I saw a way to mm-hmm be healed. And, and again, I don't want to take away from, from Jesus, because I really do believe in the power of what I saw from his sacrifice on the cross. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that was the gateway in, but like everything else is like heaped on you from Mm -hmm. centuries of, of carrying on the patriarchy. And all of it is like, this is biblical. This is biblical. I'm like, what's biblical? What's cultural, you know? And it's funny how you can, they've over the time they pick, they choose what's cultural and what's biblical. And so there's a passage that, uh, Paul's passage, you mentioned it earlier. I think it's in Corinthians, but he talks about how women, it's when he tells what women shouldn't speak in church. You know, and he says women shouldn't speak in church and they should wear their head coverings. They should wear their pearls, like all these different things. And it's like, well, the beginning of this, it's telling you how to dress and what to wear, but we don't adhere to this. But then right underneath that, it talks about us speaking in church and we adhere to this. And then right under that, Paul says, because there we know no other customs than this. And so Paul's basically saying this is what we know. So this is what we should do so that we're not disruptive. He's just trying to talk about like orderly church practices. And right. he himself right. gives you a doubt clause that says, all of this I'm saying right now is, and I when I read that one day, I'm like, wow. So what a, what it's, it's cause it's funny because they'll be like, this is cultural and this is not. And you're like, okay, so I don't have to braid my hair and like put pearls on and wear a head covering, but I can't, I can't speak from the pulpit. And um it's it's interesting because like I have a I have yeah, it's just interesting. It's just kind of wild how it all just gets programmed yeah, in there.
0: It does. Well, and yeah, the we know no other customs than this. Like that is so significant because yes, women of the time were not allowed to speak in a religious like that was or anywhere in a any public no. square
1: we were like lower than like we I, I don't know if slaves were below us or not i'm not sure i can't remember because there's. A, i saw a scale once with roman culture yeah and like we were we were down there
0: like we was, were at the yeah, bottom it was, exactly exactly you know so that is i mean yeah that's a hugely significant part of the scripture that they're yeah. just like oh, we're not gonna pay attention to that we're not um, gonna, pay attention. We're gonna let, drop oh, that off oh my god it uh I'm having more trouble in this interview than normal, and it's because I am like so angry for you. <laughs> so I'm having <laughs> like I'm this is, I'm like having trouble being this um neutral narrator a little more than usual um <sighs> because it just I feel like religions overall and again this is this is the religious. Systems and not necessarily any good beliefs that are with you know inherently within because I think yes. there is good in all of it, you've just got to pull it out of the system. Um, but the fact that these 100%. systems not only create broken people, um, but that they prey on broken people, like, yeah, like you were such a prime target, mm-hmm. and I know that. The woman who helped you, I'm sure, was not like, I'm going to target this girl. But Mm -mm. she had been taught to look for people like you. And it was in the name of God, right? It was in the name of goodness. I'm sure that her heart was in the right place. But, like, as a missionary for the Mormon church, oh, Mm. 100%, like, we were taught to go after the people who were struggling. And it was under the direction of help them, right? Help them. They're Like, their life will be so much better with God. But really, those are the people who convert the easiest because they are looking for something and then they have no idea that what they're walking into is going to add shame and guilt along with the good that it does, right? That, mm-hmm. it, that it, like you said, like it was good, but you didn't see the underworkings. Yeah. Um, so yes, for some well, reason, I think in I'm evangelicalism, getting a more upset than usual today. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I think in evangelicalism, they truly believe that like we've got to save all these people because they're all going to hell. Like if you don't say this prayer, you're going to hell and I'm going to be in heaven because a good God, this really good God would decide that half or more of the population would burn in eternity Mm -hmm. because they didn't say this prayer. Right.
0: Which, is, by the way-
1: Which it's, is it's, very, like, masochistic. Like, that's a
0: very- uh-huh. Like, think uh-huh. about what you're saying. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the sad thing is, is we- None of us do, and not, and I was no different, because Mormons totally believe the same thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. you have to have these these certain rituals and these certain ordinances mm-hmm. and, like, da-da-da-da. Um, but we So are all because, the- Real quick, are, okay, yeah. are all the evangelicals going to hell if they're not Mormons? Well, yes, but- mormon theology is very different so there there are two aspects of this one is that there are three levels of heaven and then outer darkness so outer darkness is what most religions i think refer to as hell where it's the burning and the gnashing of teeth and all of that Uh, mormons believe like you have to be real bad to get there like murder or renouncing the mormon church (laughs) things can totally get you there <laughs> oh my gosh so is that yeah. where you're gonna go are you going to out oh, of yeah. darkness yeah because okay see, cool I, I you knew well yeah and i didn't only know so there's also like levels of this too so um within the mormon church there are ordinances that need to happen so baptism is one which is very consistent um but also the ordinances that happen in the temple Okay. So once mm. you go into the temple and you make promises and covenants and you get married in the temple and all of these things, it says like in the ceremony, it says like, we are like initiating you into this higher, like light of knowledge. And if you deny this now, oh yeah, you're going to hell. Like oh, wow. this is you this is not recoverable from like because you have denied the greatest light and knowledge that you could have had access to. Oh, so wow. like my sister left the church, but my sister left before any temple ordinances. So she'll okay. probably go to like the third or the second level of heaven, but like okay. I no, like you're yeah, out of I'm, darkness. I'm done. You're out of, okay. um, Got it. <laughs> but then the Mormon church does make a caveat for this that a lot of other churches don't, which people find to be bizarre. And I don't like them. Um, so we do in the temple, we do work for the dead. So we will baptize people. So like in proxy oh. um, and do like all the ordinances. And the idea is, is that when these... Perfectly lovely people who may be evangelical and led astray in this life get into heaven, then it can be said like, "Oh, but look, these ordinances were done for you because you didn't have the opportunity, and you, or you didn't learn oh. about it, or you didn't know. Now you can deny it or accept it." Based okay, on so you get another chance, free will, a shot. So it's like, okay. yeah, it makes it a little easier for that cognitive dissonance to hold because you're like, "But we're giving yeah. them the opportunity, right?" Yeah. Yeah. but uh I used
1: to, I used to, the way I used to mental gymnastics around it myself personally is I would be, I imagine that every single person on earth would be like when they died, they would be in front of Jesus or God. And then they would know everything and have a chance to say yes again. Like I, cause I couldn't imagine, right. Like that anyone would be, especially if someone had never heard the gospel. Cause if you never heard the gospel, what do you do? You know? And like, like, and so I would, always tell myself like, it's, you know, they would, they would have a chance to say it again. They would have a chance to get to
0: heaven, yeah. you yeah. know? Yeah. And I, I mean, I love that you at least had the, the forethought to, to come up with that scenario <laughs> to like, make that work for you.
1: Cause I think a lot of yeah. times
0: we do get lost and this is not a slam. This is just human nature. Um, we do, I think it's really easy to get caught up in the, but at least it's not me, right? God, that's so sad, but I'm Okay. So we're going to yeah. focus on, we're going to focus on, on that, you know, like I'm yeah. one of the chosen ones and, um, human as humans, we, we tend to like that position. Yeah. That's why the hierarchical system is inherent in basically every system that we have. Um, yeah. we, we feel comfortable at the top of that hierarchical structure. Yeah. Okay. I want to say, uh, I, I you had, you had two things. So we're going to start moving towards an indirection Um, there was a moment where you realized that you needed to leave the church and you had a pretty profound, um, experience and I would love if you could share that. Yeah. So, um,
1: I, it was shortly after that, that semester in seminary and, um, you know, I started to see, there was there were a couple things going on um, at the time and it was obviously I said the, the biblical womanhood stuff, but in taking that class and starting to think for myself, but there was also, you know, Donald Trump was up for election and he had put that grab him by the P word tweet out on the internet. Um, Well, it became a tweet. Like people started from the video, people had started yeah, using that. Yeah. And I was like, this is not okay. This is not okay. And like, I had so many people doing mental gymnastics to try to explain why it was okay. Like, oh, well, and I had people I would sit next to and talk to and they'd be like, all men are like that. All men, that's locker room talk. That's okay. And then I had like friends that had been like, this is not okay. I can't, you know, I can't accept this. And then they went to a talk by Paige Patterson at chapel. And he was like, you know, if David were up for election today, what, you know, and things that David did with Bathsheba and some of the other stuff, would that be okay? And they were like, they were just like excusing away all this stuff. And then one, a a friend of mine, um, put on the internet, like, you can say what you want about me, but don't hurt unarmed baby on, don't harm babies. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, if you're pro-life, you need to be pro all life, including your own. And it clicked in my mind that like, what is it we have been taught that you would be okay saying that? Say what you want about me. Like, no, no, like don't say anything bad about me and don't say anything about You know, it's not okay. So I started to kind of see the misogyny. I didn't see the misogyny. And there's that misogyny that's been rooted in the church resonated with the misogyny that we were seeing Mm -hmm. being accepted by a global society Mm -hmm, at the time, mm -hmm. you know, by a vast, uh, a decent majority of Americans, not all Americans, but a decent number of them. And so it was kind of one of those moments where I had to like step back. And like I said, I stepped back from everything. I'm like, whoa, (laughs) what do I believe? Like it was a sudden waking up in some ways. And I remember one day I was praying, I was in my house alone and I had on Hillsong. Hillsong had done this. I love Hillsong worship still. Um, They had this album that they, it's called Dirt and Grace and they had done it in Jerusalem. And they sang it at the, on top of a building somewhere. And I was watching the video and I was in my living room by myself singing and i went outside and i just kind of felt like the air and i like had this i had this moment where i got this sense this intuition that told me that this was a point where the church had been kind of in my way of my connection to god and that the church was going to be removed now and i was going to be able to rebuild my relationship with god on my own now Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like this sudden realization. And at the time, you know, I'm thinking in Christian terms. So it's like an idol, right? The church was an idol in my life and it was going to be removed. Mm-hmm. But that I, I had permission and freedom to explore and, and reconnect with, mm-hmm. with the source um, in that moment. And so it's almost like I was told what was about to happen yeah. <laughs> and what I was about to go through. Yeah. But that I was given that gift that was going to be okay.
0: I loved – so when we did our pre-interview, and you you just said it, but um, you said it so so clearly in our pre-interview, so I'm just going to read it. Um, you said, church is an idol standing in the way of my connection to God. And mm. I loved that. Yes. Because yes. it differentiates between the mechanism of the church – Right, mm-hmm. and any belief that you listeners you know want to hold about what God is, who God is, you know, your connection to God, um, being able to separate those those two things and understanding that yeah, the shame and the guilt and the fear and everything that's thrown at us from the church does stand in the way of that,
1: yeah, oh yeah, for sure, and yeah. it um. I didn't realize how much I was trying to please the church more than I was actually trying to serve a higher power, and so mm-hmm. um, mm. oh god, that's so. Will you say that again? Um, I didn't realize how much I was trying to please the church instead of serve a higher power. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so... you
0: had a you had a desire, and I think so many of us do, right? Like we feel a connection and we feel a desire to to either serve or honor or you know whatever word resonates with you um mm-hmm. and we get that confused and yeah we're like yes. oh well it's 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 this when it's not that at yeah. all it's the connection yeah yeah hundred um you said to me that one of the things that you heard or you or you felt um in it's either at this moment or shortly after um when you were scared obviously and and grieving Uh it's okay. You need to move on. There is no place for you here.
1: Hmm. Yes. You remember that? Yes. I do remember that. I do remember that. And it um that would that was that same moment, that same day. Like that's that's the message I got. Um and it gave me um it gave me a lot of peace, even though I knew what I was about to go through was hard. Um, I knew I was on the right track. And that's the hardest thing is knowing you're on the right track when you're walking away from something that has been so tight, like intrinsically wound in your entire life. You know, your family, your belief system, everything you do. Um, Mm -hmm. For me, my career had been wrapped up in it. Um, My career goals, you know, my writing my dreams, like my family, my, it just, my eternity, like everything. Everything. And so to get that message that it was okay and that I was doing the right thing was, was huge. And it it gave me the confidence to, Mm -hmm. you know, shut down and, and go through what took a long time.
0: Yeah. What took another seven years to 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 fully process, to pull out of. I Mm. had a similar experience. Um, and I think a lot of women have shared, you know, this this idea with me, whether they were gifted with as strong of a answer as you got, which really is such a gift. And I'm so glad you're able to have that. Um, yeah. But this desire to fix things from the inside, right? Mm. This is like you start mm-hmm. to see things, and you're like, wait, wait, but no, like yeah. I can fix it from here. That was my first year. So the first year
1: before I left. So I knew this right in the beginning of 2017. Mm -hmm. I didn't really leave until the end of 2017. And in that time period, I was like, okay, I see it. What can I do to fix it? What can I do to fix it? And Mm -hmm. I was trying to like be a mechanism to make a difference and make a change. And I think that was part of me. I mean, maybe you can make change. Like maybe some people are strong enough to do it. but it got to a point where it was too heavy on me and it was too damaging on me to try to stay and change the giant beast. And I had to ask myself a lot of questions about, do I want my kids raised in a church like this? Because I'm trying to make a change. Do you know what I mean? And am I really going to be able to make that difference? And, you know, so it took me about that. That was my like nine months to a year before I actually, actually left. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to save it.
0: Absolutely, of course you did, of course you did because it was salvation and it was life and like, yeah. and it was your whole world and it's heaven mm-hmm. and hell and it's all of the things and your job like, of course of course you tried to save it, like what other option yeah. could you have, like you're not a mad woman, right, that's just like, burn it all down for no reason like, I don't care it's, uh, and I think it's important to recognize that but I want to say so I love that you specified that it was damaging to you to stay because I think that's a really important thing that all people recognize, right? Is like when a situation is damaging to them. Yes. Because there are going to be some people who will stay in and change it from the inside out. And I honestly don't know how they're doing it. Um, But in addition to, so you said maybe some people are strong enough to do it. And I would say yes, but also... With my experience, it was fascinating because what I got in that moment, like my moment that was like your moment, was these these people are not ready for your voice. Hmm. And I think that is significant, you know, because mm-hmm. sometimes it's not about strength. It's about the audience not mm-hmm. being there, right? And there are so many figures mm-hmm. throughout history where mm-hmm. they were so ahead of their time. Like they could not yeah. enact change from the inside. They had to go out. And yeah. there are a lot of us moving out for that exact reason. Yeah. And so yes, I want I just want to say like strength of character, you can have an enormous strength, which you do, by the way, Dominique. Like you've got a, you know, a backbone of of steel. So to to it know it feels like, like mushy sometimes. Well, <laughs> we always think it's mushy. Like it takes a while for us to be like, wait a second, I am in fact a badass. <laughs> But <laughs> you've been through hell and back. Therefore, but I know myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Therefore. Yeah. So sometimes I think it's not about whether we're strong enough and it's entirely about what we're surrounded with and the temperature of that and where they're at yes. and how willing they are to change. Yeah. Um,
1: um, just, just to beautiful. add
0: to what you just said
1: about yes. they're not ready for your voice. Um, Richard Rohr, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's, he's incredible. He's a Christian mystic is what he calls himself, but he's totally Uh in like the mystic in tradition. He, he came from the Catholic Franciscan monk, um, direction, but he actually talks about that where the people aren't ready. And he says, perhaps he says it in such a grandfatherly way. He goes, perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he said, don't cast your pearls to swine. And he's like, he's like, and he said it. And I was like, huh? Very interesting. Very good point. Yes. He has a way of of looking at scripture in a way that's different than what you've probably been taught in different yes. ways. And he was talking about that where it's like, if someone's not ready to hear the message, you can argue till you're blue in their face and they're going to like, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to hear you. Yeah. So that's yeah. such a, that's such a profound thing
0: to hear and to know. Yes. I love that. And I, I will add Sorry, I'm, like, hesitating because I feel like I've talked a lot in this episode, and so then I'm starting to question it, which the irony that we're on a Find Your Voice podcast and I'm like, I'm speaking too much. Uh, it's not lost on me in this moment. But my... <laughs> I'm dying. Um, That's hilarious. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So, yeah. Because so you, the, it's it's so the, deeply ingrained. It is. It is. It really is. So the casting the pearls before swine thing, I had such... Because I think when we're in the church that is really taught to us as this, uh, it's, it's like a prideful thing, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. I have this amazing thing and I'm so superior and I'm not going to cast (laughs) it to you. Poor piglets. Um, like it's terrible. But when I moved into this spirituality realm, which I've hinted at a couple of times, but don't talk about super deeply, but, um, I'm super deep in and my, my, <laughs> my husband is, is not, he, this is not a path that he wants to be on. Um, uh-huh. and that's okay. And I respect that and we come together in other beautiful ways, but there was a moment where I was sitting there and I was like, just, I had kind of just like a little smile on my face and he's like, yeah, what are you thinking? And I was like, oh, God, like, I really want to tell you, like, I wish that I could tell Mm. you. And he was like, well, I don't, like, I don't understand why you can't. And I was like, because it's not fair to either of us, if I tell you, Mm. because one, you aren't ready for this. And I understand that you are not in a place to believe this or, or want to believe that, you know, where I'm at. And Mm -hmm. this feels more sacred to me than anything has ever felt in my entire life. So if I present this sacred thing to you, knowing full well that you are not in a place to go with me on this, I am setting myself up to be hurt and I'm setting mm. you up to lose because mm-hmm. I will be upset. And that is yeah. not fair.
1: And that yeah. is such a that's, different that's, energetic.
0: Yeah. That's beautiful. A, that is thank you. brilliant. Yeah. It's a completely different energetic place to come from on that quote because it's, it's uh, love an acceptance of both points of view Mm -hmm. it's love and kindness of both people's emotional experience instead Mm -hmm. of superiority yeah yeah no I love that and that's a really really good
1: way to handle those moments when someone a loved one is in a different path than you're on and I might steal that from you with my own husband go for it
0: (laughs) Steal away. Steal away. <laughs> steal away. I'm
1: gonna steal that one. Uh, That's a good one. Oh, thank I'm you. I'm like,
0: wow. So, so well said and wise. <laughs> Sometimes I have good words. This episode, less good words than usual. really good
1: ones. I like it. It's so
0: hard. Thank you. It is it is hard when you get very emotionally invested in things to yes have as good of words because our emotions hijack. But um, so before we go, before we go. I want to ask you, do you have any advice, final words, thoughts for anyone hmm. who is standing in the position that you were in seven years ago um where either they are wanting to get out, feeling like they need to get out or just out um what would you what would you say to them?
1: I would say first to Trust that thing inside of you that is telling you something's not right. Mm -hmm. I think that's the hardest thing um, to, I'm getting all teary eyed now. I think it's one of the hardest things to actually accept. And I'm still learning how to accept that because you are trained to not trust that, to trust the person speaking to you and teaching to you in the church and that intuition inside of you is not wrong and you need to trust it so that it can lead you on the right path and that even if it's scary or even if you might be leaving people behind it's okay um because it's going to be worth it on the other side um and it might be hard. You might have to go through a lot of wrestling and grief and, and learning, but I, it is truly worth it. It is, I would not change one second. I would not, if I could go back in time, the only thing I might've done is maybe leave sooner. Um, but I think that it's worth it. And then I think read, read widely, research, watch shows, look at things that you've been told you can't look at. You know, look at the stuff that you've been told is not allowed and and don't, you know, don't listen to that. Try try to break out of that governor, you know? And if you need therapy, get therapy. Um, I personally couldn't have done it without therapy. And so it's deconstructing faith when it is that deeply ingrained in you, whether you came to it from birth or you came to it, you know, later in your life. Um... You're walking away from a support system. You're walking away from a, like, spiritual long-term belief system. And, you know, give yourself space to still love some of the stuff that's involved in it. Like, I don't hate Christianity. Um, I think there's a lot of really beautiful spiritual truths in it. There's things I still believe. There's things I still hold on to. So you don't have to just give up on everything. You know what I mean? But you don't have to be controlled and you're allowed to have a free mind that can think about things and see them and integrate, integrate. Like I have learned so many different things about so many different parts of life and different spiritualities. And it's, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. So take the journey and trust yourself.
0: Thank you. That was absolutely perfect. Dominique, thank you so much for being here. And I am so glad to have your voice on this podcast. And I am so glad that we met. Me too. I'm so glad we went on that car ride together. (laughs) We were there for a whole retreat,
1: but I'm so glad we had that car ride at the end. (laughs) The
0: last 30 minutes. The last 30 minutes. Ah, thank you again. It's been a joy. If you enjoyed this podcast please consider taking the time to like, rate, review, and share. Let's make sure that when someone clicks on this podcast, that our voices are the loudest. Love you all once was a woman who lost her way. She wandered through thickets and thorns. They told her her pain was not but the price of finding her soul again. Silent, she was silent, but she'll carry her pain no more silent she was silent but she'll carry her